Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media development, digital media development, digital events, all those things. Uh, if, you have, if you've got questions, you can throw them in. On the second hour, we usually talk about something a little bit more uh, focused. And today we're going to talk about 3D printing. Today, of course, Tuesdays are our graphics days. So all things graphics and 3D. And today we're going to move the 3D from the computer to the real world and, and talk about that. So if you've got questions about 3D printing, go ahead and throw those in for the second hour. And if you've got questions about the first hour, of course, it's kind of an open uh, open forum. So ask those questions about digital media production in that first hour. And let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitchell, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. First in, Funsak Dorji from Ramshala, India asks, our sports association is contemplating putting the live streaming of our soccer tournament behind a paywall. Which would be the best service to use in India? Thanks. You know, I don't know which one is the best service to use in India. Generally, globally, the best paywall service is, um, as you get started is Vimeo. So Vimeo has a has a you know a paywall there. They've got a, a variety of different controls. You can even build an uh, over the over the top. And I just don't know if it's available in India, but um, but they are probably the the most complete service at the moment. Uh, next question. Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York asks, Morning, everyone. For a community plant walk, I'd like to create photogrammetry plant models as I go. What Mac software and or external hardware as well as processes would you recommend to achieve this? For reference, I have a 13 Pro. I go with Javier. Uh, I'm not sure about Mac software, but since you mentioned they have a 13 Pro, uh, the app that I use for this is um, Polycam. Polycam is... Uh, uh, iOS app that that uh, I was here where you can take your uh, uh, iOS device and take a lot of different uh, it has lighter support it has like you can do photogrammetry and you can scan out like a, whatever you find in your way and there's just like a bunch of assets that people get around so I think you can use it uh, the way you want it I'm not sure if the, the Mac part or to getting photogrammetry 3D models of the plants you talk about and then use it later I think it's a perfect app yeah, the, the the one thing you'll be challenged with um, probably is the is just the the complexity of the geometry within um, within most plants. So most plants, the the real challenge is, is that they are uh, uh, there's a lot of geometry. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things. There's there's cavities. There's you know there's things you know when you have leaves, you want to think about all the leaves have all these little branches and all those and there's lots of occlusion. So there's no one place to sit to capture everything from one angle. And what happens is you end up getting what we what we would refer to as geometric shadows, which is that it, it's not, you know, it's just like a shadow, except it's not capturing any data. So you have to move that camera around all over and get underneath things and through things. And, and you're gonna really have a hard time getting all of those bits and pieces. I do agree with Javier that, that if you're gonna do this, that Polycam is the right one to, to use. I would consider plant generation tools. There are a lot of plant generation tools that are out there that will build 3D models for you of the things that you're looking for. Um, and, and I think I would take a look at those before I started trying to capture the actual plants. I think you're gonna find that you're probably not gonna be happy with the pile of polygons that they generate. Um, things that that that, um, that digitize really well, obviously, are, are if you go into rocks, it turns out rocks, digitize really well, uh, you know, with Polycam. And the reason for that is that A, they, they tend to not be, they tend to not have a ton of occlusions. Um, some of them do, but most of them don't. Um, they also tend to have a lot of detail that it can grab onto. Um, and they tend to be, they tend not to show 
errors in long straight edges or anything else because they're very organic. So those are the things that, you know, so if you were doing uh, geology, I think that I would, I would highly recommend something like polycam. If you're doing vegetation, I would probably try to find something that would build it for you because I think you're going to have a hard time um, getting the, 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 the detail out of it that you're, that you're looking for. Um, next question. Chris Fenwick from Emeryville, California, and sitting here on our very own panel. I'd like to introduce the panel and audience to a YouTuber I found last night, Sam Dawson. May I rant? Um, may he rant. rant? It's not a rant. <laughs> it, it, it's a compliment. So this this kid is super, uh, he's a absolute uh, Casey Neistat fan. Like, the, the guy's... The guy's little studio looks like a corner of Casey Neistat's studio, and his style is very similar. He does, he, he's dripping with uh, Casey Neistat isms. Uh, that being said, um, he brings up some really good um, uh, thoughts about what video production is and how to do it well. And in particular, and I'll put a link to this somewhere. He does a breakdown of uh, not a Casey Neistat video, but a Casey Neistat sequence. He takes, I believe it's about 25 shots where Casey and his wife go and they get a sandwich. And he breaks it down uh, shot for shot, but in some cases almost frame by frame about you know zooming in and looking at little details and then inferring what that means to the shooter as opposed to the audience. And the point of his video, of this particular video, is that as a content creator, the amount of work that we put into something is a totally different experience. And this makes sense when you say it out loud and almost ridiculous, but you kind of need to think this way. The amount of work that you put into creating something does not reflect the experience that somebody is going to have watching it. You know, we talk, Alex, uh, there's a line that you say often where you say, uh, uh, it, it, you infer to the fact that, uh, you know, the, it's difficult to make it easy. You know, the, it, the letter, what, what is the thing? I, I, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, or it's, it's easy to make content or easy to watch content. It's rarely easy to do both. Thank you. Yeah, that's the line. And so, and so what he draws from this by the end of this particular video, the Sam Dawson video, and it's it's Sam Dawson on YouTube, and it's about two videos ago. It's called The Sandwich or something like that. Uh, uh, is that we as content creators have to get over the fact that our lives are completely changed by the fact that we're trying to make this thing that's easy to watch, right? And uh, it's... It's a great video. I I couldn't help but, you know, draw the Casey Neistat parallels. And if you don't know who Casey Neistat is, Courtney, you should you may, you may want to go watch some of his stuff. But I would highly recommend that anybody who thinks that they want to make content should watch this because it does point out the um the importance of going that extra step. And I think a lot of times producers think, well, you know, we'll get a bunch of gear and then we'll get some people and then we'll send it to this location. And then somehow magically a video comes out of it. I think that's why a lot of uh, green producers uh, are astonished at like how long things take because they think they did their job. I got a camera crew. I got a camera. I got a location. So now, 
I don't understand why we don't have a great video out of it. Well, you didn't book enough time to do what you thought you wanted to do. And uh, it, it does take time. Uh, anyway, uh, Sam Dawson on YouTube. Uh, I, I watched his like last three or four videos last night, and I thought they were very insightful. I we should see if we can get him on. We'll see if we can get him on the, on the show. Yeah. By the way, I did reach out to the other person you challenged me to get on. Yeah. I haven't heard from, I haven't heard from him. But I, I sent him an email while we were still in the show that day. Okay, here we go. <laughs> uh, uh, next question. It's from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul wants to know, how do I save all of my photos.google.com to my Synology NAS1522 plus? My Apple Photos, my Google Drive, my Microsoft OneDrive, mission critical for me. Yeah, you just need to, you need to make sure that all those photo libraries are sitting on that Synology and, and then they should all just sync to that to that um, thing. So then they're constantly uh, updating. So you can move all of these things. So Google Drive can be placed on there. Um, I don't know as much about the, uh, yeah, the Apple Photos, Google Drive. I don't know much about the OneDrive, but but the other the other ones um, you can definitely put on there. Um, it does take a little bit of work to get the Apple one uh, moved over, but once you get it over there, then but that's going to be where it sits for that computer, and then it should sync everything um, to those computers. Uh, next question. Nigel Desai in Austin, Texas, asking, I'd like to add a portable monitor to my remote working setup. Any recommendations? 4K or 1080 HDR? What brands do you like? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, there's a lot to choose from, Nigel. I, I, you know, and I haven't seen very many 4K portable monitors because when you look at portable monitors, they're designed something like this to, to fold flat and run off a USB-C type single connector. And that connector can't deliver a lot of current to do a really bright backlight. Some of them, I found one down here that does uh, HDR, but I think it will just handle HDR, uh, but not necessarily give you the, you know, thousand nits that you may need to achieve actual HDR. And almost all of them are 1080p. So Samsung makes some, uh, you can find some that are uh, a little more expensive. It depends on what size you want and uh, whether you want a pop-out stand or a folding stand. Uh, there's lots to choose of. Asus makes a nice one. Here, here's one for a 15.6 uh, for about 200 bucks. Uh, but they're all mostly 1080p at 15 inches because you won't find those uh, high-resolution panels cheaply and portably in that thin a model, uh, that thin, thin enough to be portable. You know. Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, Nigel, you didn't mention whether you want it for your video village or attaching to the camera setup. Um, so I'm going to stay in the area of what can be attached to a camera on a tripod. Um, Feelgood makes a uh, inexpensive, uh, it's also branded under the name Andy Cine, 4K, <clears throat> pardon me, waveform, VU uh, meters, everything are on it. Uh, it makes a great image and super bright. Uh, the ultra bright Cine uh, that I have in front of me, I have to turn it all the way down every time or I'll have to wear sunglasses on the show. Good, Javier. Uh I will also recommend that if you're looking for a portable that would be for your laptop, get one that gets USB-C input because it's easier to connect directly. And for me, it's very distracting if my laptop monitor is HDR and the external monitor is not, or one is 4K and the other is not 4K. Like try to keep things like in the same realm because for me, like jumping resolutions and jumping gammas and everything for me looks very weird having it side by side. So I think it's something that you should consider. 
Yeah, go ahead, Chris. I uh, totally agree with everything everybody said. Uh, I th- this this one, and I'll get a link to it. Uh, I do recommend 4K. This is exactly what you were saying, Courtney. It's thin. It's USB. Oh, sorry about that. It's USB C powered. Uh, it is 4K. Uh, Which one is it? I I don't remember, but I'll say this. Uh, it was it a, lot more... a black square, and you don't I know, know right? Which one it is? So, so you just open it. Doesn't it have a know. logo on it somewhere. Come on, hold man. on, hold on. Here, I have a black box. And this is it's perfect. Right this is exactly okay. what you're it's, it's visa mountable. It's got absolutely not a single. It has a QR code. It says, "Please send Amazon order number to register your set two years of blah blah blah." And there's literally now, no logo on it anywhere. And it looks fantastic. But but who makes it? Is uh, it a native 4K it, or does it just handle? Does it 4K? boot up? Downscape. Does it boot up? Yeah, it does. Oh, I mean, if I there, there's it no in. logo on it. There's not a single. Lo- okay. How they're much so t- how good? Much? They're like we don't even need to. We don't, don't even need to tell you who we, we are. We don't need to tell you like, who we, we are. We don't want you to tell anyone else. We don't want you to tell anyone else. This is like the secret monitor company. I think that's what it should be called. The secret monitor. Okay, hold on. SMC. Did, did, uh, how long do you want to wait? Company. Okay. How long do you want to wait? Just put it in the in, in the chat. All right. I put the Amazon link into the chat, and then you'll save us all some time. And Amazon will be like, "Why did we suddenly sell these monitors?" I will, that I will no say. One knows I will about? say this though. Um, I remember recommending it to somebody. Oh, hey, you should get the. Here, I'll send you a link to it. It, it, it was like you know two hundred fifty bucks. It's awesome. Turns out, it, I paid a lot more for it than I thought I did. It's like seven hundred fifty bucks, but it is awesome. But it doesn't have a logo. Doesn't need Just, it. It doesn't need it. It's so good. Okay, right. I found it. Okay, it is. In. No, I'm telling you now. You made me work this hard. The bung, uh, por- bang, 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 foul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? On Amazon, it doesn't even have a name. It says portable monitor 4K. Oh my gosh! And it's seventy. It's seven hundred fifty dollars with no name. It's seven hundred bucks. Here it is <laughs> for no name. Last purchase September fifteenth, twenty twenty two. That was you. Portable. Wait, I'm. I am. I. Coco Par. Coco Par. Oh, Coco Par. Okay. Well, there we go. Coco Par. <laughs> All right. There we go. Coco Par is the is the is the answer. It looks great. I was shocked that the single around. cable for power and image worked. Like, that just, it's a great. It's it, it, what's funny is if I if my company was named Coco Bar, I would put it everywhere. I'd have like I don't even know what it, I don't know what kind of logo I'd have, but Coco Bar. I don't know. You can say I feel like there should be a big thing and be like Sega. They I've, just said it comes to someone and they just go Coco Bar. I felt bad that I had spent that much money and I had not realized I had spent them. It was a very, it was a very, um, you were in a moment. It was an Alex Lindsay moment in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Next question. How do I follow that? Next question is from Jonas Dattel from Stuttgart, Germany. If you look at your current workflows for video and live production, is there a software solution you're missing that would solve issues and problems for you? You know, I think that, uh, uh, from one thing that I think is still missing, I think people kind of overshoot this is that, um, and maybe it, maybe the companies are all going to build their own thing. And you see Apple kind of going down this path. So maybe it's not a good one, but people need their own kind of personal graphics system that is not OBS. It's not Ecamm. It's not trying to cut a bunch of cameras. It's just like, I want to put some lower thirds in. And I want to do a couple things and I want to have this stuff there. And it's like 10 bucks and it just works and it works and I don't have to figure out how to do it in this app and how to do it. I love the fact that, you know, 
Zoom's going that direction. Apple's kind of going that direction. But there isn't just something you can just turn on and just have little things pop up. Um, and, you know, and I think that that, for a lot of people, that would be useful um, if it wasn't very expensive that they could run. Mm-hmm. Uh, was kind of going down that path, and then they kind of jumped, the, they kind of, you know, lost the thread. They just started adding. The, the big problem with all these apps is everyone starts adding features. You know, like, like and they, they add too many features, they make it complicated, and then, and, then, and then it doesn't work. I just need something, we just, and then being able to remote control it so that I could, you know, it could look back and be told something over the internet would be really useful. Because we would send that out to our, to our panelists and be able to do those things. And, and I think that, and I don't want it to be tied to any platform, and I want it to be able to be remote controlled, and I haven't seen that yet. Go, Chris. So, um, you know, uh, last year or whatever, uh, our friends at Frame.io, hey, Emery, uh, sold their platform for like 1.2 billion shekels at, uh, to Adobe. Good, good payday for Emery and team. Uh, Frame.io is a collaborative video review. And some other things, but but at its core, it's collaborative video review. And I think that if you want to write a great piece of software, I think the thing that the industry needs is collaborative video creation for everything before you need Frame.io. And what I would concentrate on is the corporate video space. Huge amount of work, huge uh, need out there, not very sexy. It's not, you know, it's not, you're not going to win any awards. Uh, but the number of people in the corporate space that are trying to create an explainer video or, a, you know, hey, look at us kind of thing or to put something on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram to just to get noticed um, and to do it in a way where a lot of people can collaborate. You can create a script together. You can create a schedule together. You can uh, organize things in such a way that when you get to post-production, hello, uh, the, 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 the post team has everything that they need. Um, I've talked about this before, uh, and maybe Jonas has heard me talk about it, but I think the collaborative work environment for creating a video uh, Everything prior to Frame.io is a huge space that could be served well. Next question. Next one in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Andy wants to know, for a global company going 100% remote, what would you do to support in-person meetups and work weeks, hotel agreements, or thanks? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. If you're a global company that is doing everything 100% remote, you, you might want to put together an annual retreat where uh, people from all over the world that are members of the company can get together and meet each other face to face and, you know, spend two or three days and uh, discuss, you know, directions of the company and everything else. And, you know, uh, think of something like Davos or something where you meet in a, in a nice resort spot for three days and a uh, company picks up the bills uh, and you pay the bills and get everybody together. If you're rich enough and a hundred percent, you know, remote. You know, I, I've, I have some friends that work in a, in a company that is 100% remote, and what they do is very similar to what Courtney was talking about. Once a year, everybody is flown in. They, it's usually flown to somewhere in the world, and it's usually pretty nice. It's a company that makes a lot of money. <laughs> so it's a pretty nice place that they get to go. And, um, and then they, uh, 
uh, they have regionals. So, so basically there's a regional every, uh, uh, every quarter, and then they have ones in individual cities every, every month. So there's kind of like this, you know, the ones in the cities, people are going to get together. There's just, you know, beers and chicken wings kind of thing and, and talk and the company pays for it, you know, like, you know, for them to, to go do that. So they, you know, they it's a, you know, it's kind of a free, uh, free evening. Uh, then there's a regional one where they grab these regions that they have and they bring people together and there's a little bit of travel, but not a lot. And then there's this kind of big one. And I have to say that they just don't feel like they need, cause they spend the rest of the time on zoom. Like they just, you know, their, their windows are open. Now they, they do the thing where they, they have a zoom. It's kind of like what our after hours, they, it's open all the time. Their people are turning their windows on and off. They're kind of expected to be in the zoom all the time. Um, but not with their camera on. So they, you know, they kind of like turn it on and they can have little symbols that say they're not listening or they're working on something or whatever. But there's like this giant Zoom that is kind of like there and there's breakout rooms for different teams and everything else. And it, they can't, like when talking to them, I was having dinner with them a couple months ago and they were like, I can't imagine working in an office. Like they just couldn't, like they couldn't, they couldn't even visualize it, you know, to to work in an office anymore because they're like, you know, they have they have budget for their home office. They have they're very well tied in. They they feel like they can talk to everyone. They feel like they know each other, and they jump into little breakout rooms all the time talking about things. And and I think that that's the the thing is is that when someone goes full bore and really builds that out, they end up with a um, a different, you know, like they they. It's, it's a different space. And, and I think that it probably attracts people. People who want to work in an office aren't going to work at this company. <laughs> you know, so this is a company that does swimming, not football. You know, and so, so if you want to play football, then you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong place. Um, so, so anyway, I think, it's, I think it's interesting. I think there's going to be a lot more companies like that. Um, next question. From Funsak Dorji in Dharamshala, Indian, India. Uh, good morning, panelists. I am using an Ethernet Plus power adapter with lightning connector for my iPad. I want to power it with a power supply instead of a battery bank. Could a panel recommend some power supplies? I tried many phone chargers to little avail. Uh, yeah, I don't know how to turn. Um, I'm using it with a lightning connector. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Doesn't the power supply that comes with the iPad work for you? Can't you plug it into this uh, adapter that uh, apparently has... Uh, that he's using uh, to connect uh, with the lightning connector and Ethernet. If it has both, if it's an adapter that has Ethernet and a power connector. Oh, I think he wants to power the, the plug the power supply that comes with the i that comes with the iPad. Ethernet. Um, Funsak, try try to re re ask that question. I'm really interested in trying to find the solution, but I don't quite understand what you're trying to solve there. So. Bring that one back. We're, we're definitely interested in it. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. What side of the A10 Mini Extreme is the air intake? I've installed an ultra-quiet 120-millimeter Noctua fan next to mine. Keep it extra cool in the summer as I'm concerned about overall lifespan. My system LEDs are on the lowest setting. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, my Extreme, the, it's a little, uh, the little vented side. Uh, on both sides of it, and I believe it pulls from the left and exits on the right. Um, that's just how it feels to me because it feels cooler when I touch the left side. Um, that would be the place to put the fan, whether it's pulling or pushing. Uh, that's where you have to determine. You're going to make sure that you're not fighting the uh, natural convection of the system. Go ahead, John. 
tangential thought i i see on black magic sites that there's 20 percent off on all the a times what does that mean there's something new coming soon courtney yeah on the mini uh not the extreme the uh, output is on the left and the intake is on the right so just stick your hand on either side and the hottest side is where the uh, output is and the coolest side is where it's taking it in yeah and and i you know i i don't know if uh I don't know if that that sale has been on for quite some time now. I think uh, for for Black Magic, I don't think it's new. So they may be just adjusting the price. I, I know that we're benefiting from the fact that I think that Black Magic is very aggressive about wanting to make sure that they maintain market position, and um, they're going to keep lowering that price as they can as, as as low as they can. And we're benefactors of that of that opportunity. Now, next question: Kenny Hampton, Greenville, Illinois, asking. I'm installing a Meeting Owl 360 conference room camera connecting video and audio to a computer with USB-C. How can I extend that cabling to 25 or 30 feet? You're going to need to find a USB-C uh, that is, um, uh, number one is good luck. <laughs> I've been having a lot of trouble with this. Uh, so you need a USB-C that is, um, you probably won't be able to find any that are copper. You're going to need a fiber one that will carry power if it's being powered by it. If it's not being powered by it, then you should be able to find fiber USB-Cs that will work. And I'm, I'm researching those. I think that the ones that were recommended that I'm going to buy um, this week actually are Cable Matters. I think are, make some that are fiber, um, fiber USB-Cs. I have not been able to get for these Insta360 links, uh, I have not successfully um, solved more than 10 feet. <laughs> so the, the, this is, a, you know, every, every cable, whether it's, even if it's 3.2 Gen 2 uh, can't get them to go more than 10 feet with that and have them actually operate. So I'm going to try some of the cable matter ones. The problem really is, is that I got to make sure that it carries power as well. Uh, if you don't have to do that, you may have made more successful. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado asked, I have Zoom H3 VR and a Zoom F3. Can I record ambisonic files at 32-bit float? Edit software without paying Adobe VIG. Vision Pro content creation, possibly. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Well, not if you're using the uh, H3 VR to record, because if you look at its specs, uh, it's this funny little pyramid thing that comes with the microphones built in. Its specs are uh, up to 24-bit, 96 kilohertz resolution, so you can't do 32-bit float with that. You can with the other recorder that you mentioned, uh, the F3. However, it only records two track it only has two microphone inputs so if you're using an external ambisonic microphone you wouldn't have four uh, inputs which you'd need to record i think the ambisonics and for editing i'm not sure i think audacity would let you edit the four track uh, ambisonic stuff together and it would be free and you wouldn't have to pay the vig to uh, uh, adobe next question Douglas Carmichael here. A German church convention recently staged a church service that was 98% created by ChatGPT. Is this a publicity stunt or the future? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. It's probably a publicity stunt for the church to, to show that they can do it. Uh, but I will say that most people aren't very, I mean, the thing we have to realize is that most people aren't very good at what they do. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that all people aren't good at what they do, but most people are not very good at what they do, and that, that includes sermons. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of them can be a little dry, um, you know, and folks, you know, so I think that, you know, with most writing materials, this is, uh, we were talking about this last night, that, uh, you know, 
white collar everything you know was fine with us automating everything out there except as soon as we started automating white collar things everyone's like (laughs) like what are we doing here uh and the reality is is that uh um, that I think that, you know, I, it, I, you can probably produce a pretty good sermon that is better than many sermons out there. I think it does the German church, this may be a, a referen- referendum on the, on the minister that they have at that moment. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of churches that have incredible orators. And, you know, that, I mean, that's, I kind of feel like that's kind of their job uh, or a big part of their job is to, you know, as a, as a preacher or minister is to be really, really great at that. Um, and some are, but, you know, a lot of them uh, are not. I grew up with a lot of them that were some. Some were great, and some were many were not. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I think that. Uh, so I think that the ChatGPT in any any place where there's a lot of things that need to be produced on a regular basis, and the the average uh, person generating that content is average. Uh, ChatGPT and other things are probably going to dig deep into that into that area. The big challenge that we always have to keep on looking back at is. If you take out everyone that's average, how does the average folks become great? And what I'll argue, I've been really thinking about this a lot, is because there's no place to practice. You know, there's no place to practice anymore. I will argue that education in school um, is uh, going to become extremely important because people are going to have to be 22 years old and exit as near experts. You know, like they're not going to be able to, we can't, you know, up until now, school is just, you just have to prove that you could do it. Um, and people who came out didn't have any knowledge that was particularly useful most of the time, <laughs> you know, so, so, uh, you know, and they had to be retrained and everything else. This is going to change everything. The school is going to have to be extremely precise and extremely effective because it's going to be competing against something that will knock you out otherwise. Um, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Well, as far as organizing the service, you know, ChatGPT could be good. It's great at, at uh, generating lists or, or organizational charts or organization of a specific service if you give it the parts if you have it create the sermon i'd be careful because it can hallucinate and it could make up new books of the bible it could make up new saints new uh new characters uh from whatever religion you have and intermix different religions together you never know next question next one in from jack rupel in breckenridge colorado Asking Alex, mentioned using two cameras stereoscopic for possible Fusion Pro content creation. Would two retired iPhones work well for this? Edit with which software? Final Cut Pro, DaVinci, Blender? Yeah, the, 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 I've done that. I printed, I actually, we're talking about 3D printing. I'll see if I can, maybe, I don't know if I can find it before the thing, but I printed a, um, a camera rig for iPhones. And so what you have to do is, um, it, the, pr- the problem is, is there's a lot more to it. So for a basic iPhone situation, you can do this. So you have, you, you basically need one iPhone and here's the thing. And then you flip the other iPhone over oh, and well, actually, no, it's like this. It's like this. And then you have to flip the other iPhone like this so that their camera rigs are, um, their, their, their cameras are at interocular distance. So I think it's like 65 millimeters or something like that. So you have the, you have the little, um, you have your, your little, uh, things here and this one, you have to align these, you have to decide which lens you're going to use so that these are aligned to those and, and so on and so forth. And so, um, you can get this. And so I, I printed a rig that did this and it actually, you know, takes photos and video relatively well. The real problem is, is that is that this is, I mean, it's cute to do something like this and it, it, it's fun, but the problem is, is that 
when you think of 3D, you often think that the lenses are going straight out like this, but that's not actually how our eyes work. Our eyes converge like this on an object and they just, it's very subtle, but they're actually going, you know, a little, if you do it a lot, you look cross-eyed, but they're converging just a little bit. This is actually one of the big problems with computer graphics eyes as well as they keep them straight and not converging. Um, anyway, so convergence is very hard to do with iPhones. <laughs> so it's like, it's a big, it's a big panel. Uh, with cameras, we have them on, we have them on rigs that actually have them converge. So when we control them, uh, on a typical camera, if you, there's a, there are some Prestons that will do this for 3D and, um, you can, you have these big rigs and you can actually control convergence, focus, and, uh, zoom. And one of the things that you can do there is, is a lot of times your focus and your convergence are the same or similar. So you lock those two together and you can kind of, as you do focus, it, it converges in on it, but doing it with a phone, you can get some basic 3D stuff, but if you're really talking about doing it for something like the headset, um, you're going to have to be careful. You, you, the one thing you have to be very careful of is getting that interocular, sorry, getting that interocular um, correct is important. If, if the cameras are too far apart or off kilter, it will really mess with someone's eyes if they're using it in VR. <laughs> so, um, and so, and if it's too, too close together, it's not, it doesn't damage anything. It just is not very impressive. Uh, next, uh, go ahead, Chris. Alex, is the, this convergence thing is interesting and it ties to something else I was dealing with many years ago, but could the convergence be somehow tied to the, the focal length or the, the depth of field in some sort of automated way? Because I would assume that if you have something in your field of view that's in focus, uh, that that would probably be what you're looking at and therefore that's what the convergence would be. Is it, is it tied to depth of field? Uh, it's not. It's not really tied to depth of depth of field. Is is how big the aperture is, and so your depth of field is can be a lot of things there. Um, your convergence is really just. It's the point point of it there, but but it's tied to actually like what you're looking at. Yeah, um, it is. Uh, yeah, it is tied to what you're looking at. Absolutely. So it is. It is. That's why you can oftentimes tie convergence to your focus point. So you can tie convergence to the focus point, but the depth of field has to do with the aperture, not where it's focused. Uh, I, I understand. I, I, I probably yeah. misspoke when I said depth of field, but but the but the object that you're yeah that you're looking uh, at that's you're where you're going to converge to yeah. the focal point. Ah, uh, Mickey yeah, just yeah, yeah. chimed in. The focal point, not focal, mm -hmm. yeah. And you can do. There's all other controls that we sometimes have when the really advanced rigs, you can change the interocular distance at the same time. So you can do all kinds of things, moving in, in and out and breathing. A lot of these these cameras have had, had a lot of tools back in the day when 3D was going to be a big deal. And now it is again. So everyone's, I, I have all these friends right now that are dusting off rigs, trying to find all the parts, you know, all those things. So um, yeah. So uh, hey, Chris, can you, I have a little 911. Can you uh, take over for a minute? Sure. All right, thanks. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas asks, the built-in Teams app will now include support for Microsoft's communities features inside Teams. The company's answer to Facebook and Discord. Your thoughts? Oh, nobody raised their hand, so I'm going to say a couple things. Uh, I would have raised my hand had I been uh, looking ahead. Uh, this We talked about this a couple of days ago. We talked about what companies, uh, a lot of times, uh, especially tech companies focus on tech things. And I am 100% behind the fact that Zoom is the best video conferencing 
application, especially technically, uh, that we have available to us. I have clients that are now uh, going to kill Zoom on all of their machines, and they have people all over the country, big company, and they are pushing everything to, to Teams. And ironically, you know, I say, oh, so you, you really love that 640 by 360 goodness, do you? Uh, and they don't care. They don't care about the resolution. What they care about is the feature set. And in their particular instance, the thing that they are most excited about is the ironically, is the ability to share documents. Oh, it's just so easy. We could just share it in there. And you could do it other ways, but they like that kind of, you know, that that feature set. So companies that are tech companies need to think about what the people that make the decisions care about, not just those tech things. It's not always a tech answer. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael is here. Alex or Chris you mentioned part of the value of uh, WWDC is interacting with the other developers. Could a private Discord server or similar or an after-hours like Zoom spot fill that role? Uh, probably. I, the, the, what, you miss, what you miss out on, potentially, in this sort of interaction that we have here is the chance happenstance the like oh hey you i know you you're that guy and to to bump into people online is different than bumping into people uh uh in real life you still have to go through all the hassle of getting on a plane and getting there and and getting a hotel room and stuff like that but when you have thousands of people uh going through that same hassle you may actually bump into that person uh, Courtney? Yeah, developers are a funny lot. You know, they go to the WWDC to learn stuff from the mothership for to, to learn about the new software and how to end the API and how to interact with it, et cetera. But they tend to be fairly secretive because they're all developing products that are competitive with each other. So they don't want to share very much with their other developers. So uh, I don't think... Uh, a discord where they're going to be sharing their, you know, latest way to do such and such uh, with other developers is going to happen. It's, uh, or at least there's not going to be a lot of traffic on it because they're definitely in a competitive walled garden. And I don't think they like to share. John. Uh, you're going to find most developers hanging out on GitHub and Slack exchange, those two places. And are they doing it in a way where they are, sharing ideas or just solving problems well they post their code up on if they post their code up on github and make it public then it's open for all to see and comment so that's about as far as it goes right there do you, do you think do you, are they doing it to um in an altruistic way or are they just trying to get are they just hoping that somebody will solve their problem for them yes <laughs> okay next question Hey, Chris, uh, by the way, I love reading questions, uh, which means we need your questions and uh, send them in as a producer and, and vote them up or vote them down, depending on how they go. Uh, we have a great panel here. We'll be answering them. Uh, Paul Wallace is here from Austin, Texas. Comment on Final Mouse's keyboard with a built-in video display, which costs $349. What use is a video display under the keys? Courtney. <laughs> Absolutely no use at all. Uh, this takes uh, two useful items, your video monitor and your keyboard, 
and puts them together in something like this, making them both unusable. You've got keys in front of your video and video behind your keys, making them unreadable. And about the only time I ever look at my keyboard if I, is if I have to find out where that pesky backslash or uh, uh, tilde key is that I never use or is different on every single keyboard um, or where the delete key is because I tend to move that around a lot from keyboard to keyboard. And with a video display behind it, it makes the keys almost unreadable to find those things. And the only thing it does is it's a gimmick so you can have, you know, pretty lights uh, or or dancing images behind the keys as you press them. And it's like, well, I'm not pressing keys to make funny images on my keyboard. Why would I need anything? Why would I want to pay $350 to make uh, the screen unreadable and the keyboard unusable? So Yeah, last I checked, no. I don't have any eyeballs on the tips of my fingers. I think the best use of this keyboard <clears throat> is when you you plug it in and then you step back and you clean up clean up your office to an unrealistic state and then you take that little vanity photo that you can post on your Instagram like oh look at my studio it's so cool yeah nobody yeah. ever looks at their you know keyboard's a private device you know you don't I wouldn't want to show you anybody don't invite mine. people it's in to show your keyboard you know yeah <laughs> next question Roscoe Jones in Madison Indiana asking Toyota is testing electric cars with virtual stick shifts. And he asked for sound effects. So, what other tactile surfaces might we want produced if we can think our world is going more virtual? Maybe Senor we can even Preto. print them ourselves. Yeah. John? Cars are silly. Nobody's going to own a car in 20 years from now. We're going to have rope. You're going to have a Tesla or an Amazon subscription. You're going to pay. $500 a month for unlimited miles and owning a car. You'll be an old timer at the car track with your old car for nostalgia reasons. Uh, give me a time frame, John. Predictions. Let's do 20, this. 20 years. In 20 years. Okay. So 2043. Uh, let's see. Uh, Courtney. Yeah. A lot of car designers are going back to tactile switches for controlling the radio and uh, the air conditioner, et cetera, when a lot of them have gone to, you know, the, you know, media center touchscreen control uh, because people have to operate them while they're driving. Of course, if your car is self-driving itself, you know, then it might make a little more sense. But as far as a virtual stick shift, they've tried this. They've tried various ways to switch the transmission in the past. There was the, remember the Dodge uh, uh, Hydroglide or the push button transmission that they had on the old Dodges in the 60s. Changing the radio. No, you're not. You're going in reverse. <laughs> yeah, you just hit it. You hit reverse. And go run. Yeah. Uh, they're not necessarily a good idea. They're just a gimmick uh, uh, to take you in a different direction. And and almost all cars these days, you know, the, the electric cars have a, a round knob to change, you know, between reverse and forward. And they have a constantly variable transmission. So you don't really need to shift between gears. Yeah. Um, so it becomes less and less useful to even use a stick shift other than going into park or reverse. Uh, so whether or not it could be touch operated, but you kind of mm -hmm. want to watch outside the window when you're going into reverse rather than, you know, touching a touch screen. My Dodge has a knob to change uh, the gears, you know, drive reverse. Yeah. And it's literally right next to the volume knob. It's ridiculous. Mitchell. I was just going to agree with uh, Courtney there having a tactile 
button, particularly if you're adjusting the radio, I just got to have that little thing that I can touch without having to look at the screen to be able to make that happen. Um, and I also don't like uh, on the newer uh, cars that I uh, have the model of uh, that they've put the, uh, the the gear shift on the stock and it's a it's a button press. Again, not very intuitive. I like the old gated shifters that we used to use. Um, it's a, it's a bad, bad situation. I think as we get older, either we're going to be uh, having our licenses taken away, which will solve that problem, or uh, all cars will become virtual in that uh, we'll make a call for a car and a car will show up and take us to where we want to go. That's what John wants to see happen. Yeah, um, I think that a lot of car reviews I've been watching lately they talk about the balance between having these, you know, big giant displays, but also a certain number of controls that need to be virtual. Uh, let's move on to the next host, Alex Lindsay. Hey, hey. Uh, yeah. And if, if you if, if you um, if you have any other questions for the rest of the hour, go ahead and throw those in. We've got a little bit of space before the second hour starts, but we may start the second hour early if uh, if we don't uh, have more questions there. Uh, I actually have one question uh, for Alan. Alan, have you seen any of the? Have you watched any of the WWC stuff? Have you been looking at any of the the VR? Only the VR, the the headset's been the primary thing I've taken a look at. Did you? What did you think of it? What did you think of the this from a three D artist perspective? Well, I see the obviously see the potential for it. Uh, what I'm looking at right now is is a little more than novel interest, I think. But I'm looking at where the technology can go. I'm thinking about you know where this is going to be five years from now. What the what the, what OS ten of the Vision OS is going to look like. So. I'm I'm just I'm just seeing the future uh, where the future is going. So personally, not really interested in uh, what it's in the actual product right now. But I see the potential for the future, and I'm thinking in terms of content development. That's going to be huge content development for this particular device, and all the potential applications like virtual tours and things like that that can be. So yeah, from as from a content developers perspective i'm very interested in it and i'm actually thinking about what all the potential markets are for that so yeah yeah i think that it's gonna be really interesting um the uh i've been watching i watched like i don't know 15 hours of wwc mostly just the vision stuff that that was mm -hmm. there and a couple other things and the what i'm surprised by is how mature the platform is like for being something they just released all the way down to for those watching, just go look. There's a there's a WWDC session that is on um, the uh, Reality Composer Pro. Uh, just look at the nodes. So I'm someone who used to design nodes, like how nodes look and how they work, and what they look like. The fit and finish on the nodes is like version five level. <laughs> like it is, it is real. They're like the nicest nodes I've ever seen. I know that seems like an odd thing, but when you, when someone's paying attention to things down to that level and the way that they work and the, how they, how they go and, and then what they actually do, um, you know, I think that there's a lot going on on the back end for this. And I think that, um, one of the things that's, you know, I guess I'm looking at the p potentials for muse virtual museums is outrageous, you know, exactly. being able to, um, you know, be able to go and we did some experimentation with this in the, you know, with, uh, back with, um, Google when the old Samsung headsets and everything else was almost 10 years ago now. Um, we did, um, testing where we just had a big open room and you could walk around and there was big pieces of sculpture and things that you could look at and everything else. 
And we're like, oh, this is the future, but that was 10 years ago. So now it feels like the future is very much there where you could have a, you know, you could just be looking around. One thing I didn't notice was a lot of, uh, you don't see the person moving that much, even though you should be able to. I haven't seen a lot of examples, most examples of person where they are, you know, and then we're going to put things around you um, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to, you know, it, it feels like you're in a sphere, you know, not, not in a, you know, not moving around. So it'll be interesting to see how that, how that actually looks. Anyway, it's just, like V it's like VR plus one. Part of me wonders like how much time is somebody actually going to spend wearing these things? Like, is there any amount of eye fatigue, the comfort, the, just the yeah. the human factor of what are the practical realities of being in this virtual headset? It's a, it's a, obviously an advantage. The, the big problem with VR is that you're totally isolated and bumping into things, you know, that's kind of taken care of, but it's still kind of isolating. I'm hypo, you know, thinking hypothetically, what happens when I can put on a normal pair of glasses that I use in a daily basis? How far can that tech go? How far can the hardware go? You know, when you get to a point where you can put, you know, buy a pair of, you know, sun Oakley sunglasses or something and have a VR interface in there. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if it can go that far. If there's it like, can, I think, but it'll be a while. It'll be a while. <laughs> it'll be a while. I think I think we don't see thin glasses for five or six years at least. Um, I think it's just a physics problem. So um let's go to the next question. And it's from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, asking should a budget for office hours type setup have a ceiling or should it be open-ended to allow for growth? Go ahead, Javier. Can't hear you, Javier. And I'm muted, sorry. Uh, I was saying that I think office hours is a place where we can experiment and try different things and like budget constraints and, and budget tops are like the common thing we, we work around every day in our outside jobs so i think that uh, having like a ceiling here i mean if someone wants to put like 10 lights and like an alexa and like two different cameras and have a camera operator and have a boom operator helping you i mean you can do it because we can see what happens and how can it make it better and the other way around if someone can get like a decent setup for let's say 400 dollars, we should learn how can we do it so we can use all these skills in the other outside world? So I think that having like a set budget, uh, it wouldn't help the like the purpose of the community. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, we've kind of uh, built a couple of lists uh, sort of using the Sears model of good, better, best. But in each case, uh, we've probably going to exceed it ultimately because that's the way we are. We're tweakers. We like adding and subtracting stuff. Um, what you see here on the uh, the panel currently probably would fall under the ten thousand dollar range, but in reality, I think most of us have spent at least twenty, maybe fifteen, uh, to get to where we are right now. Yeah, and and I think that I just want to make sure it's clear that for people who are on the panel, you don't need to have that much investment. I think that most there are you definitely can have a good mic is really important. You know, like good mic and an Ethernet cable are the two things that I would say are the the most important parts of. Uh, you know, what we're doing for office hours as far as an office hour setup. After that, it just becomes incremental. If you're here a lot, you have a tendency to keep on accessorizing um, and, uh, and and buying better better things, you know, piece by piece. But but I think that, you know, for an office hour setup, I think that really a strong mic like an MV7 and uh, an Ethernet cable are the things that make the biggest difference um, in in uh, how people appear on the on the panel. Now, next question. From Douglas Carmichael. Douglas wants to know, 
Would there be any large language models that can be self-hosted internally or even at home? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, there are plenty of these. These um, I I've been working with an organization that actually is doing a, a bunch of doing an LLM based on just the books within their library. So they just take all those books that were in digital form and they passed it into. Um, uh, into into a library and built that large language model only referencing that library. And what's interesting about that is that is that it produces plain English answers based on that library and then allows you to, um, uh, but then gives you all the references of what it used to create that. Um, it's really, really powerful. So I think you're going to see um, definitely things like that in the future. It's far more accurate in that one vertical than, like I think that you could take you know, an entire legal law library um, and all the law and all the precedent and all the things that you would need and put them in there and then be able to ask questions. And that's going to be a lot more accurate for that vertical um, than something like ChatGPT, which is ChatGPT is, is as smart as it as everyone who it referenced when it wrote it, <laughs> which is, you know, so, so you have to remember there's a lot of crazy people on the internet. So ChatGPT has, you know, accuracy, but it also has all the inaccuracies of all the conspiracy theories and all the crazy talk and all the, you know, just, you know, just add olive oil to everything, you know, whatever it is, it's, it, you know, it's, it's going to be, uh, you know, ChatGPT is, is, is uh, both very, very powerful, but also um, it can be a little bit, you know, misled in that area. So with these verticals, now the problem with the verticals is they don't have a lot of, um, they don't have a lot of perspective. So ChatGPT has all of the things that it can refer to while they, so there's a balance there between the two. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think uh, John can probably explain this a lot better. In fact, I'd like to have him comment on this. Uh, I have heard of several mentions of uh, LLMs that will run on a on a phone, even um, that once the computational index or the uh, all the computer work is done to tokenize uh, the LLM uh, to characterize the model. It depends on the number of points of uh, what do they call it? points of reference, John? Uh, chime in here. Parameters. 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 Right. Uh, once it depends on the number of parameters it's trained on, how much calculation is needed, and it's all integer math anyway. So you don't need a lot of uh, high-speed computational stuff. It just takes a long time to ingest everything and uh, calculate the forwards and backwards relationships of everything. So I think it can run once it's optimized on a smaller device, like a single PC or server or a, even a phone. But uh, John, why don't you correct all the wrong stuff I just said? No, you guys are on the right path. Alex, Alex is right on the money there. So, so you've got stability. If you ever go listen to Demis talk, he'll 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 talk about getting getting these models down to the point where they can run uh, run on the far point. So, in, on a phone or a laptop, and they're getting down. The problem is those models aren't as effective, and so you've got two different you've got two different um, divergent paths happening. The big models are going to get bigger and bigger. And that's going to be very, very few people. And then you're going to have these smaller, more specific vertical models. And so you've got a lot of people out there calling foundational models that are still running on. They need the horsepower. And scalability is the other problem. These require a huge amount of compute. And, and that's the reason why OpenAI, OpenAI went to Microsoft, because they're spending billions of dollars on this hardware. One card from NVIDIA, an H100, is $30,000. So it's super, super expensive. We got a long way to go to get it down 
to the point where it's going to run well on a on a local device, uh, and that will be for specific for specific verticals like like Alex mentioned. So you get the big models going to grow big into the cloud, and then you're going to have verticals on on device. Next question. Next one in from Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana, asking. Paul McCartney says the Beatles will come together using AI for a last record. Uh, the record will feature AI-assisted vocals from the late John Lennon. Will you buy this album? What do you think of using such techniques? Good, Courtney. I think it's a great idea. I mean, in the past, they they created a new single, Free Like a Bird, from a, a demo cassette that John uh, did before he was uh, killed. And... Uh, and the surviving Beatles added to it, and I think uh, Ringo and and uh, Paul could get together and create the AI John and George. And you know, if, as long as the two of them and McCartney was behind most of the writing on all the Beatles stuff, anyway. So, if they write new new, if he comes up with some new tunes to fill an album, I think they could definitely populate it out. Remember, there have been a lot of. Uh, Beatles cover bands and, you know, help the show that played in Vegas for many, many years, you know, had a huge following uh, using just the music of the Beatles uh, with sound alikes. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a doable. It's, it's a way to bring money to the estates of those that have passed and make a little money for those that are, are uh, on their way out. You know? Good, Mitchell. I'm going to coin a new phrase right here. And John Preto, please keep track of this for me because I know you're like that with statistics. The phrase is AI karaoke. I think people have the same <laughs> expectations if I was singing the Beatles songs as they would for that. Javier? I think it, uh, someone's going to do it eventually. So if they are taking point, like if you are Joe or Paul McCartney, you have to do it before someone else do it, like the official version. And I think that using AI for music right now is being seen as cheating but i think it's a tool i mean it's like a tuner or a arpeggiator or all of those stuff that can make your creativity flow faster and you can you can do different things so like having someone that work with the real beatles now work with the virtual or the ai beatles i think we can get something interesting so i i'm a beatles fan since i was kids because my my, fa my dad is a great beatles fan so i i want to see what i want to listen what does this sound like should be interesting. We'll see how it goes. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael. Um, how can you send arbitrary video streams into Mac OS applications that won't accept virtual camera input due to the Mac OS security restrictions? Would a web presenter be your only option? Uh, I don't know if it's the only option. Um, there's a couple different. Uh, Blue Condor has, uh, has its own uh, HDMI to... If, you're, if, that's, if that's what you're trying to do. I mean, if you're trying to stream something in, you're going to have to find some... Um, you know, it can be a virtual camera. So, you you know, a variety of virtual cameras. If something's generating a virtual camera, it should be able to still be seen. I'm not 100% sure of that. Um, but, you know, Blue Condor has a HDMI to USB. That's probably the simplest one. I think I have one. This is the simplest digitization that I've seen so far, which is just HDMI on one side, uh, USB on the other. Now, is it as good as some of the other ones? I'm I, I'm not sure yet. I have to put this up against some scopes. Um, so, um, but this is as simple as it gets, but, but having something deliver it to the, um, to the system in the new, um, in what Apple's doing next is going to be interesting. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah. We scoped out that, uh, same Condor blue device and it's, it's good to go. 
Yeah, I mean, the main thing is, is that when you start to miniaturize these things, it's what is the chip doing to black levels? And we, we see this already with the, with the ATEM stuff, but, but what are they doing to black levels? What are they doing to gradients? What are they doing to like, are they as good as, you know, something bigger? And that part, I don't know. I know it works, like you plug it in and it works and the, um, but we can't know that unless we're putting against scopes. <laughs> you know, so, so, and the problem I'm having right now is that my scope box crashes every time I connect it to my ATEM. So I'm trying to figure out there's an update somewhere and I can't figure out why. So I'm trying to solve that. Um, and then once we figure that out, then we'll put some of these things up and see how they, how they look against each other. All right, we are now jumping into our second hour and, uh, and we're gonna be talking about 3D printing. Uh, 3D printing is, is something that has been around actually for a very long time. And one of the things that we're benefiting from is the lack of the, the, the expiration of patents. <laughs> so the reason that a lot of this stuff, you're wondering like, why would, if we've been printing all this time, why was no one making printers? And then suddenly everyone was making printers. It's because the patents ran out. And so as the patents have run out from the nineties or from the early aughts, um, you know, we've been able to have better and better technologies uh, rolling out. So there's, you know, there's the PLA printers, which we'll talk a lot about. Most of us have those. There's resin printers that are the next generation of stuff that is uh, rolling out that has, you know, oftentimes higher resolution. Um, and uh, a lot of us, you know, what I think at first, I know that when I got a, um, uh, and, and panelists can put their hand up if they want to jump in and talk a little bit about their their points of view here. But uh, when I got my first printer, I think that the, the, the interesting thing was I just didn't know what to do with it. Well, first of all, it sat in a box for a while because I was like, oh, it's going to take a long time to set up. What I will tell you is it took me all, I got a Quiddy, it's a Q-I-D-I, and it's all enclosed. Uh, there are a lot of printers and, uh, you know, I think that Courtney's, for instance, is open air, um, an open air printer. Uh, mine are closed. I, I, I have cats. <laughs> so, so the idea of an open printer seems like cat, cat's going to get in there and start doing something to it. So, so mine, mine had to be, so that, that's one of the choices that you have to start making. Is it going to be in a closed environment or it's going to be, um, is it going to be in an open environment? And it just depends on where you put it and who has access to it. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, so I, mine sat in a box for quite some time and me thinking, oh, this is going to be a big lift and I got to find, you know, half a day to set it up. 20 minutes later, I was printing and I was like, okay, that was silly. So what I will say is that the printers get easier and easier and easier to set up. Um, they are, um, they're remarkably straightforward to get started. And I would highly recommend, you know, getting one. Um, you know, for me, the light bulb went off when I kept on thinking about all the cool things I could possibly print, but I was at um, Hallmark, Hall, or Hallmark Cards. We were doing a live stream out of Hallmark Cards. And, you know, they have, their R&D division, I know you're probably thinking, Hallmark Cards has R&D? Like they have an R&D division? Well, they have, you know, think about all those little cards that you open that make sounds, that do little funny things, that have little extras. Somebody has to figure out how to do that. And there's an R&D department in uh, Kansas City, Kansas City, uh, Missouri, or I think it's Missouri, no, Kansas City. Anyway, um, that is, uh, there is a, um, there's an R&D division there that will actually, um, that's figuring all this stuff out. And they've got like, I don't know, when we were there 10 years ago, they had probably eight or 10 printers that were running all the time. And when we first started loading in the morning, first thing, there was someone pulling some stuff out of the printer. And I, I asked I asked them, so what, is this going to be part of a card? And he goes, no, 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 this is just for me to fix my pipe fittings at my house. <laughs> like he just said, I just threw it into the queue. It was like, there was two peeps, pieces of pipe that just weren't sitting well. And he's like, I just printed this little thing so that it would, it would, it would just, that they would lock together. 
and that's when it went off for me that, you know, it's, you, you can have a printer that prints little characters and you can have printer, printers that do cool things. But once you start getting used to the printer, you start printing, you know, all kinds of things. You know, the, um, uh, you know, there's, this is, um, I, uh, it's, it, this, it doesn't have a blade on it, but my, my son literally made a, a basically a plastic switchblade. This is a three printed, uh, switchblade without a, without a blade. Um, but it, it, it has a little spring that you put inside it and, and, you know, it's got all the little bits and pieces and you can see all these little, you know, it's pretty, uh, let me see if I can pull this open here. He's going to be upset that I just tore his, tore his little thing apart. But, um, anyway, if you look at it here, you know, it's these, all these little, let me block my eyes there. there it's all these little pieces and all of this stuff is stuff that he printed out. Now the, a lot of this stuff is available on things like Thingiverse. Um, and there's lots of these things that you can just download and print. Um, so you don't have to come up with all the printing itself. Um, you can put a lot of those things together, but these are all things and I print, um, stands, I print little things. I don't have one of them right in front of me here, but, um, but I print a lot of things that I just need laying around. Um, uh, we printed teleprompter holders and all kinds of other things with them over the last, um, you know, 10 years or whatever of printing. So I would, you know, it's one of the reasons we wanted to have this is just to get people excited about it and think about it because I think we're going to do more and more and talk more about it uh, within our community. And this is kind of how we intro things. Um, is, so if you've got questions about 3D printing, um, go ahead and throw those into the into Makana. Courtney, I'll let you talk a little bit about your experience. All right. Yeah, I'm kind of like Alex. Uh, uh, when I first started looking at 3D printers, I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know how I can do that. But you saw... You know, most of the stuff a lot of people were printing are the things that you find on Thingiverse or little little uh, characters for Dungeons and Dragons. I don't play Dungeons and Dragons, you know, like a little Moai head, you know, or a, a little uh, a flexible cat, you know, uh, these little <laughs> gimmicks and gadgets that are, you know, an interesting demonstration. This is called print in place. So this is all printed in one pass. You don't, no assembly required. It comes off the printer like that. But its utility is, you know, other than showing you, look at this neat little thing. You know, there's no utility in that. So I, I put off buying a 3D printer for the longest time, and then so I finally gave up and and bought one. I bought an Ender three, which is uh, one of the cheaper cheapest printers you can get for under for around two hundred bucks. When the price started coming down, you know, before that they were about twelve hundred dollars to get in, and the the cheat by by the way, Alex is pronounced cheaty, like. I have a cheaty printer. Cheaty. That's your your printer's best. Cheaty. The QI is chi. So uh, anyway, uh, but my Ender 3 that I started looking at, you know, there's a lot of solutions maybe this thing could have. And so I started printing things like VESA mounts for uh, lightweight monitors for doing teleprompters to mount on stands. And I had some old microphones. Now, now for that, a question for that VESA mount, um, mm -hmm. did you, uh, did you have, did you model that or was it something you yeah, were able to just uh, download? No, I modeled, I created this from scratch mm -hmm. and it has a, a little rosette so that as you, it, moves, it locks down and it's, you know, once you lock it down, it's not going to go anywhere. And so what did you model it in? Uh, Thingiverse. I've modeled everything I've built here. You'll see as I've made in Thingiverse, which is a free, free website. You go to your register and it's all online, runs in a browser. So you can use it from any computer or even your phone if you need to. I had a bunch of microphones that uh, whose shock mounts uh, were made of rubber or uh 
old plastic that got brittle and broke. So I say, well, maybe, you know, a new shock mount for one of my old microphones. I'm not necessarily going to use it in the field, but I want to make, get some utility out of it again. So I made a shock mount for my Sennheiser 416s, redesigned it, made it even better than the existing shock mounts in it. This is all 3D printed, except for the screws, uh, you know, 100%. Oh, is, the, is it springed? Is the spring uh, 3D printed as well? The uh, No, this is foam. Uh, right. These are these are just elastic bands. Uh, these are are right. rubber bands. And I just printed these little uh, hooks that you know goes up under here and the, and that holds them. And this is uh, foam urethane yep. that dampens so it doesn't rain. You know, so it doesn't go bong when you when, yeah. you, when you hit it. Uh, so that works. I made a uh, here's a uh, a case for my um, Insta three sixty uh, link. You know, I can carry it with me and it protects it. Nice. Um, and uh, they're getting faster. I, my latest printer is, uh, and Alex might look into this, is the uh, the K1. This is the uh-huh. Creality K1 that just came out. And it is very fast. This is what it looks like when it's printing. And what's the total volume? Pardon me? <laughs> What's the total volume on that? What's the total? How many inches by how many inches by how many inches? Oh, uh, the, the millimeters. The print, the print, all millimeters. The print always like, space is 220 by, this is the regular uh, K1. It's $600. Mm-hmm. Uh, it prints at 600. Uh, it can print up to 600 millimeters per second, which is about 10 times faster than the Ender, Ender 3. And it has a, a 220 by 220 by 250 print area. And they make uh, it's all enclosed, Alex. You'll like to know. And they they make the the uh, Max version, the, the K1 Max, which has a couple extra features. It looks almost the same, except it's bigger. It has a 300 by 300 by 300 millimeter uh, print space. It also has a built-in camera, and it has lidar built in to examine your first level, your first layer of print. Uh, and also, it, it's smart enough to notify you uh, when things go wrong. And it sees spaghetti, it'll send you a text and say, your printer is now printing spaghetti. Uh, please pay attention. So it has a lot of <laughs> stuff like that. And their price, it's going to be priced around $900, I think. The uh, I don't think it's shipping yet. It's supposed to, this month or next month, I'm supposed to start shipping. The K1 just started shipping about a month ago. So they're getting out there. And these new high-speed printers, the um, you'll see the Carbon uh, is a competitor for this. Uh, Carbon X2, I think, is, uh, is a high-speed competitor. And this is the Creality K1 is a competitor for that Carbon X1, I think, which is these new XY printers that uh, can print about 10 times faster. The thing with... Uh, um, Resin printing, you have to do is you have to worry about is resin. I've never delved into resin printing because it's kind of messy. It requires a lot more post print work, you know, with the with the uh, filament type printers, FDM printers. Uh, once it stops, you pop it off the build plate, and you're pretty much done. Pop it right in, you know, start using it right away. Uh, right. The um, the resin printers, you've got to take them off. You got to soak them in alcohol to get the goo off, and then you got to fix them under ultraviolet light or sunlight for a number of hours to harden them up. Uh, so it just takes a lot more work. Uh, and it is, uh, although it is a lot, uh, you know, 
a little more precise. You have a, a, lot, a lot more fine controlled. You can print finer little details if you're printing little uh, statues or something. <coughs> Dropping stuff, sorry. Uh, so it has a little more detail, but uh, not necessarily a lot more uh, versatility. And there's not as many colors available in, in the type of resin printing as there are with, you know, these uh, filament printing comes in, you know, silver and gold and every right. color of the rainbow that you can imagine. And you can get some that are a little bit uh, stiffer and then more rubbery, right? Yeah, some of these. I have some things that are printed in TPU. This mm -hmm. uh, uh, The case for, the, for this is printed in TPU, which is a flexible filament. And it's really strong. And you can roll over this and crush it up like this, and it still pops back out to its original shape. So uh, it's urethane. So it's very tough. And you can print in urethane. You can print in ABS. You can print in PLA. You can print in nylon. I have carbon-filled PLA, and you can get carbon-filled uh, polycarbonate or nylon or carbon-filled, you know, carbon-fiber-filled, um, uh, well, PETG. There's a number of different uh, types of filaments that you can get. Some are, some are food-safe, some are not. You know, That's great. Some smell, some don't. <laughs> Go ahead, Alan. Yeah, well, I got on this uh, 3D printing bandwagon a few years ago. I bought myself a Creality uh, CR10S. Um, I think you can, I think they still have them. They're about maybe 350, 400 bucks. I got it mostly for the print size, but um, Courtney kind of touched on most of my <laughs> my observations. What are the printing. kind of things that you're? What What are the kind of things do you print? Well, I. It, you know, I'm a 3D, well, I, I live in the 3D world. I was kind of infatuated with the idea that I could take a lot of these things that I create in a 3D world, even little characters that I create and whatnot, and just print them out and see them in the physical world. Um, also, you know, experimenting with ZBrush sculptures and things like that, being able to create those. So I, it was more for, um, a, it was novelty and nostalgia element to be able to see my creations in the physical world that's one of the one of the reasons i got it the practical reality of that was beyond the first of all this you have to be insanely patient and it was just taking away too much of my time i spent so much of my time in actual production and when i got into the 3d world just it's painfully slow <laughs> again courtney was touching on the fact that they have this i guess it's a k1 new printer i was a kind of i thought that video was sped up i didn't know they're getting that fast now so uh but you know once the speed gets up there um you know i think it'll help a lot but anyway just just know i got on this bandwagon again most uh most of the pain points i hit in 3d printing i haven't done much of it I spent like two or three weeks just playing around, tinkering, really kind of looking into it. And then I was struggling to find a practical application for it beyond that curiosity. And even when I think about printing something, I'm a little bit hesitant to do so just because of the time investment. And I've had funny stories like the spaghetti scenario where you think you're leaving something printing, you leave it printing overnight, you come in the next morning and you just have just nothing but spaghetti filament everywhere. So it's, it's a challenge. It's definitely a hobby. It's not something you can really take passively and just think, oh, I'm just going to hit print and it's going to work. It requires an investment to get it to work. 
Yeah, I, I think that we're, I think it, it's getting, as you look at the newer ones, as they keep on getting better, I think there's less and less, like everything else, you know, the drones were a little bit of an art project when you first got them. And then now they're, they all just kind of work. And I think that the 3D printers are getting that way as well, which I think is why it's important for us to kind of keep talking about it, because I think it's gotten a lot easier. I know that I'm always surprised my printer sits down there and my son uses it probably more than I do now. And he's, um, and, and, uh, but because it's, he's, it's running down there a lot. And so, um, and I'm buying PLA. And so, so the, uh, so, but I think that, I think for me, like I have this little, um, I don't know if I can show it. I, I just hacked this together yesterday. I had this idea of, you know, I want, I, I haven't modeled it yet, but you'll see this. I wanted this little thing off the top of my, off the, off the top of my, um, Telestrator, you know, I've got all these colors that I can choose from. And this this had been sitting down below. So I just got a little bar. I, I found some metal bars and put it out there. But what I, what's going to happen next is, you know, I hack something together I could do in five minutes. Now I'm going to model a piece that holds this, that attaches to this. You know, that's the, you know, like that's kind of the the progression of it so that my little, my little colors can. So now I can, you know, now I have something that goes like this and I can just push the button and change the colors as I'm working. And it's, you know, that, those are the, you know, having been able to do that, but but figuring out exactly where to put it. Now, I have to admit, I'm in this case, I'm doing kind of the standard iteration process, which is that I'm, um, uh, the standard iteration process where I'm, you know, kind of little pieces at a time. Um, and uh, I just spilled a lot of tea on my my desk someone walk away for a second um anyway so uh, uh yeah, my my other thing is back there i've never moved my my screen to that position before and i can't so anyway um uh anyway so i'm gonna now hand this off to courtney for a second while i go get something a towel okay um yeah there's uh, uh as alan was saying the the speed of uh printing the thing you saw printing was this uh was a 600 inches per second speed test. And that, that video that I showed was not slowed down. And this is the thing it printed. And you can see that's just a single 0.2 millimeters thick wall there that it printed. Uh, this is PLA at 600 uh, millimeters per second. So it's got a lot faster. So a print that would typically take you, you know, four or five hours to print a larger print can now print in about an, you know, three quarters of an hour, 45 minutes can come off. So that's, uh, I think these new, uh, these new high speed, uh, uh, filament type printers are going to definitely increase uh, the utility of the hobby. Um, so it's, it's going to go a lot further. And, and as Alex said, once you, once you get a 3d printer, it becomes, you know, the solution to all your little problems where you used to have to go to the hardware store and, find some kind of existing clip that's going to work okay. But, you know, I can sit down and think of design something in about 10 or 15 minutes, send it to the 3d printer and have a functioning copy of it. And just, you know, within the hour and never have to leave my chair. You know, this is like, like a little uh, holder for my uh, dish scrubber in the kitchen. Uh, you know, I made this one out of TPU, so it's flexible. So it just uh, clips in into there and, didn't have anything and, and had a little piece of molding that needed to go on and made it white. So it fit into the molding. So it's, uh, it's been a, a boon around the house, just, uh, creating little, little gadgets and gigas that, that make things that fit things together, make things work. The stand for my, uh, ATM mini is I designed and printed that. So, uh, 
that's holding it above my mixer over here. You'll just find a, a, a plethora of things to do. Go ahead, uh, Mitch. When are you going to be able to 3D print food? That's all I'm interested in. You can. Food. Spaghetti you would be can. easy. You can yeah. 3D print food. There are 3D food printers. There's, uh, You go to your typical bakery and they have a, a 3D operated uh, printer that can actually print color images onto uh, icing on the top. And there's chocolate printers as well that you can make designs and extrudes uh, chocolate material that uh, has to set up, uh, you know, it prints it hot, it cools down and it forms a design with, you know, 3D designed cookies or How do you know when it's al dente? <laughs> it's always al dente until it cools. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's get into some of the questions here. Uh, why don't you go ahead uh, and read the first one there? Mitchell. No problem, Courtney. Uh, Tony Fugua from uh, uh, Indianola, Iowa, wants to know what is the difference between additive manufacturing and three D printing. Uh, they're kind of one and the same. When a lot of people refer to additive manufacturing, there are uh, techniques that are used besides the filament type uh, FDM printing we're talking about that. Uh, uh, can actually print out of metal. Uh, so they use a powdered metal of some sort, either aluminum or magnesium or titanium, and laser centering that can uh, take a high-temperature laser and it spreads a thin coating of that metal powder on the surface, and then the laser goes by and fuses that to the layer below it, and then it lowers it down a little bit and brings another layer of... Uh, of uh, aluminum powder on there and that fuses it and you end up with a 3d printed part which is called additive manufacturing and the difference between additive manufacturing and typical manufacturing of metal 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 products is quite unique and even plastic products is unique in that uh, with additive manufacturing you can have a complex inner structure which you could never do with casting because you couldn't uh, generate voids inside a solid uh, and in FDM printing, since it's being printed a layer at a time, you can have really complex support structures inside a hollow uh, device that can actually make it almost as stronger, if not stronger, than a solid device, a solid uh, part. So it's, uh, it's useful in manufacturing. It's a lot faster than if you were to machine something out of aluminum with uh, you know, CNC machining. It would take a lot longer than it is a lot of times to do additive manufacturing for this, for for especially for custom parts or prototyping. It's it's used a lot in that, and a lot of manufacturers are actually building and giant farms of additive uh, you know, laser centering three uh, D printers to print parts uh, for production. So a lot of uh, they're being used in production a lot now. And there's new techniques for additive printing coming along. I saw one the other day that uses a uh, very strange. It uses it, it uses a fabric which is a very thin uh, fabric that is uh, heat sensitive. It's very thin, and it rolls out this fabric, and then a lay uh, a powder is spread on top of that fabric, and then it's exposed to a, a UV light in a pattern, and um, then the next layer of fabric is brought out. And uh, it's exposed, you know, coated with this this uh, powder, and it's exposed to UV light. And then uh, a big pressure plate comes down, and he presses all these layers of all these fabric that are embedded with this uh, 
uh, heat sensitive uh, material or metal. I think it's even metal. And it makes a really hard composite. Maybe it's like carbon fiber uh, that makes a really hard composite, but since it's printed in layers and then they put it into a bath that dissolves all the uh, fabric that's in between in the gaps. And uh, they end up with a, uh, a new type of uh, additive printed device. So there's a, there's a lot of different technologies that are used in that. And, uh, that's all referred to as additive manufacturing. They're all subsets of additive, additive manufacturing. All right, next question. Jack Cannon from Phoenix, Arizona, asking, I was watching a camera build video, and they were 3D printing T5 hard drive mounts. I find 3D prints usually break on me. What are the strongest filaments for printing? Well, they do have, uh, uh, you know, it, I think PLA is one of the strongest. There's a guy online and, and does YouTubes that does uh, stress testing on almost every type of filament that's out there. Uh, nylon is pretty strong. I found that the TPU, uh, if it needs to be stiff, TPU is not the thing, but if it needs to be strong, you know, this stuff will not break. TPU will not break or tear apart or, you know, I've made keychains out of it that get broken all the time. You know, that the, the metal rings are getting broken, but I made them out of TPU and they never break out of TPU. So if you need uh, tensile strength this way, but not stiffness, your TPU urethane is, is really a good way to go. It has good layer adhesion. And since you're printing with filament printing, you know, your weakest um, weakest point in a print is going to be between, you know, horizontally across a layer. So that's tendency, uh, tendency for them to break. And PLA will dry out after a while and become brittle. Uh, so you got to watch out for that. Uh, ABS is a lot stronger. Uh, so if you print an ABS or nylon is really quite strong, but nylon requires uh, a control temperature. It has to be an enclosed printer. You can't have any variations because it will warp as it cools. If you don't keep the temperature uh, consistent while it's printing. So that's a consideration. Also, it takes a very high temperature printer to print nylon. So it's a, it's a bit finicky and pretty hard to print in nylon, but I print almost everything out of PLA or TPU between the two of them. There's PETG, a uh, variety of different formulations that are stronger. Uh, and the carbon fiber, there's wood fiber. Uh, you get a PLA filament with wood, wood fiber in it. When it's like a, they take like a powdered wood, which is almost the consistency of flour, mix it in with the PLA. And uh, it is stainable and sandable, just like wood. Uh, and it looks kind of like wood when you stain it. It doesn't have wood grain. It has, has kind of light layer lines of it. But uh, you can make something that does a, a pretty good emulation of wood and feels and sounds like wood and sounds like wood. So as far as the strongest, I think uh, nylon is the way to go. Or polycarbonate. There are some polycarbonates. And you can even print in Teflon, uh, which is difficult to print in too. But uh those are possibilities. And, and, when, and when you say this, some of it also has to do with how you structure the model too. So as we start to build these models, you know, how you, how you build that model, like long flat surfaces tend to be super brittle when, you, when we print 3D and they tend to warp. So one of the things we were trying to build these, uh, these uh, teleprompter holders and flat with some little lines on it was, not, was something that took 
a lot of work to get that to actually um, hold up. So, so I do think that you you want to be think you a lot of times it does take some some work to to think about how to structure it so that it has the the stiffness that it needs um, or the flexibility. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Are we at the point where we can switch print heads, different materials mixed with other materials? Yeah, Courtney, do you want to um, answer that? Yeah, in fact, they make printers that are a combination CNC and laser cutters and printers, 3D printers, because the gantry that moves the, the printing head can move any head precisely and use the same a similar type of G-code from a 3D design to do layouts. So there's some that have interchangeable heads that you can put a 3D print head on there, you pull that off, you put a laser cutter on there, which is just a high-power laser that can then uh, engrave or cut up to you know half an inch of plywood of wood uh, with a laser. Um, and there's some that have a CNC that you put a little motor, it's a little motor on there with a little, uh, drill, kind of a drill bit, which is actually more of, of like a router bit. And then it can do a CNC type router things for uh, carving, uh, circuit boards, doing circuit board layouts or carving, uh, uh, placards or placeholders or, you know, the, the title bar, the, uh, Name plates that you would put on doors, things like that. Uh, that's all interchangeable. There's some that make interchangeable heads to do all three of those. Next question. Tony Fugwa from Indianola, Iowa. What is the best 3D printing technology for beginners? FDM, SLA, DLP. Go ahead, Courtney. Oh, can't hear you. All right. I'll say FDM is a good place to start. The printers are quite cheap. Uh, I'd suggest, let's see if I have one here. The uh, new Ender, the Creality Ender 3 V2. This is the V2 Neo for it's about, what is it, $287. Uh, and it has automatic bed leveling and uh, uh, better, better extruder uh, auto leveling. All that stuff's pre-installed and you don't have to mess around with it. The, the smaller brother, the V2, is cheaper, the regular Ender 3. you got to be careful because there's about 12 different models of the Creality Ender 3. Uh, and they make you know a V2, a V2 Neo, a S1, Ender 3 S1, Ender 3 Pro, Ender 3 Pro Max S1. You know. right. They're different print sizes, et cetera. But the, it's a good thing to get started with because you'll learn about filament type printing and the variety of different filaments. Um, My question ahead, is always, like, what's the obsession thing? with millimeters? Like, I, I, if you're out of the country, I know you're like, well, that <laughs> all makes sense to us. We're the only people that deal in it. I know, but I'm like, you're an American, you know, an American, you know, Amazon site. I'm like, inches would be useful. <laughs> well, you can, use, <laughs> you can use inches if you like and convert them. No, no, you can think about it. It's just that I, I you know, even, even for me, I use millimeters and centimeters in a lot of things. But even for me, like to really visualize, like what, how big is that box? I have a tendency to just have to do a conversion to make sure. I Eight inches it. square. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There you go. Uh, next question. Rob Collins from Raymore, Missouri uh, asks, what kind of safety or quality things should be thought of when getting into 3D printing? Alex mentioned Closed printing because of cats, but what else should be in mind? 
I mean, there is some off gas as it, as it does that. So you want to, you know, I don't have it in a place where there's a lot of people hanging out, you know, and it's got good ventilation and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I'm definitely conscious to the fact that we are cooking plastic. So, um, so there's, uh, you probably don't want to put it in the kitchen, um, you know, but uh, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Funny you should say that for the first year, my first three d printer I kept in the kitchen. And I could have fine. it nearby rather than upstairs so I could hear it when it stopped and take a look at it every now and then mm. to make sure it was still going. But yeah, there are some some uh, some of the filaments, ABS, for example, has an odor to it. It smells when it's printing because you're heating up plastic. You know, if you're ever a kid and you burned your little army men or something, uh, uh, you know what that. That, you know what that burning plastic smells like. Uh, it should never reach the point of burning. PLA. I don't smell any of the PLA printing. The PLA printing is just basically cornstarch based. Uh, so it's a corn based product. So it doesn't smell. You know, maybe smells like a tortilla that you've left on a little too long on the stove. But <laughs> other than that, it doesn't have any smell and uh resin printing does have a stink to it because you have that uh, plastic resin which uh, if you've ever done any hobby work or something where you're using resin in a catalyst you know what that stuff smells like yeah you want to use that in a ventilated area and especially if you're using uh as we mentioned earlier earlier laser cutting or laser engraving a lot of uh, metals can if they're if they're have coatings on them can generate toxic gas if you're burning the surface of them with a laser. So you want to make sure you have a fume extractor that extracts that to the outside so that only the neighbor's dogs uh, get sick. Uh, so you have to take all that stuff into consideration. I don't, if you're printing in PLA, you don't really have to take, uh, take care much about uh, extraction of fumes. You're not going to smell it very much. The reason a lot of them are enclosed is to keep the temperature consistent because uh, if you're using thermoplastic, which is what all the filament printers are, uh, it's having to go from a solid to a liquid into the hot end and then quickly turn back into a solid again. So it's going through that uh, phase change very quickly there. And it, it all depends on the cooling of the filament. There are special fans that blow on the filament just as it comes out of the extruder. So it has to be in a liquid form when it lays down on the layer below it so it sticks perfectly. And then it has to cool rapidly so that by the time it gets around to the next layer, it's firm. So, um, uh, and if you don't have an enclosed printer, a lot of times it will warp as it cools down. Horizontal things can warp and they can warp up from the bed that it's printing on. If it warps, starts to warp up, it can ruin your print because the head's going to run into the, to the warped layers below it uh, if they warp up. So an enclosed printer is better for printing plastics that uh, warp easily when cooling. Uh, so that's you know one of the things to take into consideration when you're finding a place to put your 3D printer. You know, I wouldn't put it in the bedroom. They do make noise too. <laughs> they can make a lot of noise. Um, this this new K1, which prints when it's printing at 600 inches per second. I don't know if you could hear it there. Uh, on that video I played back, but it's the fans are going full speed and that thing's going <laughs> moving that fast. It makes a lot of curious sounds and the, the stepper motors themselves kind of sang on the earlier models before they came up with silent uh, drivers for the stepper motors. They would, especially when you're printing circles, they go, zhoo, 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 
<laughs> Make funny noises. Next question. Next question in from Tony Fugwa in Indianola, Iowa. Tony asks, will cement-based extrusion ever become a commercially viable technology? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, it is. And there's a company in Austin that's uh, printing an entire neighborhood out of uh, extruded concrete. Uh, it's a little bit difficult because they have to find concrete that is liquid enough to come out and extrude and hardens quickly enough to not go runny, running down the side of the wall that you're building. Uh, so it's a fairly uh, tricky thing to do. And the, the composition of the concrete is, is really critical in doing it. And of course, you end up with a house that looks like it's built out of little rubber tires or something because it's got these scallops down the walls. The other thing, it's kind of hard to, uh, if you're casting concrete uh, a layer at a time, you can build in certain things, but adding things later after it's finished, like electrical and plumbing and all that stuff, uh, has to be done carefully because the printer, as you're printing those wall, the walls of the house, uh, you have to be careful that the print head, which is you know pouring concrete in this case, doesn't run into anything that you, know, you can't prelay the electrical outlets and print around them. That's fairly difficult to do. So there's there's a lot of problems uh, with printing uh, cement-based uh, 3D houses. I, I guess it will come along in a way. It's great and it's cheap and it's fast. Uh, that's the thing is they can set up this printer in a neighborhood and print, you know, four houses in a week or something. Yeah. Uh, I think I think the the, the 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 stuff is happening and we've definitely seen ones be relatively successful. Uh, my major complaint with it is that if you're building a bunch of cities that you want to make accessible, you need to go up. You know, like, you know, like, you know, to you need, you need to print up. Like if you're building something for high density, building them going out like this creates an entire level of infrastructure. So while printing a bunch of houses that are all one story high, you know, makes sense in the short term, in the long term, the amount of infrastructure it requires to support those houses goes way up, um, you know, to do that. Whereas if you start building buildings that are, you know, so it, it seems like a... It gets a lot of good press um, from someone who studies a lot of urban development. It's a, it's a horrible way to build a town. You know, like you 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 know you need you need vertical. Um, you need to go up up to to make it more dense. It's a lot easier to support in the long term. It's much cheaper to do it that way. Next question, Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. How loud are consumer grade three D printers like the ones that a few of you that I have seen on uh, here and after hours from time to time? I don't find them that loud. I mean, it's not, you know, I could probably play one in the back here and you probably wouldn't, if it was in the corner of the room, this mic, you might hear a little, but with the sound, you know, whatever, I, I think you probably wouldn't hear much of it at all. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the normal speed ones, the, the you know, if 60 millimeters per second speed, which is the typical speed of like an Ender 3, uh, they're not loud at all. In fact, the newer ones have uh, silent steppers in them that uh, used to be able to hear the steppers, stepper motors being driven. But now, nowadays you don't really hear that. You hear, the main thing you'll hear is be the fan on the power supply. So they don't make much more noise than a, than a computer, you know, desktop computer and so on. So, uh, but the, the high speed printers, because they have to cool that filament off because they're moving so fast, uh, the fans ramp up to a much higher speed. So you hear, it's more like, you know, somebody running a small hair dryer in the other room. But they're not they're not that noisy. And the fact that they're enclosed, that K1 is enclosed, so it keeps a lot of the noise from uh, 
coming into the room. If you keep the top on it and keep it closed up. Next question. James Brooks in New York. What is a good 3D printer if you're getting started? I think we kind of covered that. The 3D Ender is probably a great one to, to uh, get started. The V2, is that what you said? Yeah, there's there's so many Ender 3s. The the basic Ender 3 is you can get it for about 160 bucks. Uh, but you have you you know, and of course there's lots, uh, it's a good hobby printer because there you look online, there's so many upgrades you can print yourself, you can print little knobs for it and little deck, you know, uh uh, cosmetic things and tool holders and uh, uh, new, you can change the mount, the spool where the mount goes and you can change a lot of stuff. There's a lot of upgrade kits for the Ender 3 and and by doing the upgrades, you start to, you learn a lot about the hardware itself and you learn to repair it and how to fix it and how to tear it down and put it back together again. So, um, you know, that's useful to know. Uh, the K1 that I just showed the, uh, the high-speed printer uh, it comes in a box ready to go. You pull it out of the box, no assembly required. You take the foam out, you run the calibration thing and load a spool of, of uh, filament into it and hit go. And it goes, <laughs> and it goes real fast. It has automatic bed leveling. Uh, you never have to level a bed anymore. Uh, and, and there are very few adjustments on it. And that was one thing I had to get used to is I broke the print head uh, in the first week, it worked really great for about a week. And then I got a nozzle clog and I tried to, to remove the nozzle to unclog it. And there were no instructions cause it was so new. And I broke the hot end. Um, and I had to wait for another one to arrive from China to fix it. They covered it under the warranty, even though I broke it, but, uh, <laughs> you, 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 it is ready to go out of the box, but some of them require assembly because they're shipped flat. Go ahead, Mitchell. Wouldn't it be cool if you could print a 3D printer, except for some of the parts that are specific to it? But um, I think that would be amazing because then you can get AI involved and it can start making little uh, von Neumann machines. <laughs> Eventually. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the Prusa printers, look for them. They're printed in, in Prague. It's a very famous, a very popular printer, a little more expensive than the Ender 3. But they're made uh, other than some other than some of the aluminum structure that the gantries roll back and forth on. Um, they're they've got about thirty percent printed parts, and they've got whole farms of the Prusa printers printing new Prusa printers. So they do print a lot of the parts for them themselves. The Creality's are all Creality's have no three D printed parts. They're all aluminum, all metal, and uh, and some a few printed plastic parts, but they're all glass metal. And, you know, we've, uh, we've also had folks on in the past that have really talked about also printing for, for jewelry making and so on and so forth, because you can use those as building the forms that you want to do. And so we'll, we'll see if we can bring that back up again, too, because it's a pretty slick uh, approach to things. Uh, next question. From Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. Jack wants to know, it sounds like the pros of TPU are pretty good. What are the cons of TPU filament? Hey, go ahead, Courtney. It can be a little finicky uh, with getting the temperature just right and the extrusion, you know, and the retraction just right. So it doesn't leave little strings behind. But uh, when I've got mine printer tuned up right uh, for TPU, it, uh, uh, it's great because it, uh, it, like I say, it's strong and it uh, withholds a lot more. Uh, it, it, it takes, you know, uh, it takes a beating and keeps on, on working. <laughs> Next question. 
Dave Troutman, Edmonton, Canada. Are vibrations a consideration for causing problems with a print? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> like you can't, uh, I had someone talking to me about how they're having trouble with all the printing and I was like, so what are you, where, where you know, like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, we're, we're, you know, on the road, we're in a Winnebago and they're, and they're printing and they're like, and it's coming out all messed up. I'm like, you can't, you, you can't, you can't, you can't be moving. <laughs> Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. And the newer printers, they're, they're getting so much better. The, the K1 that I got, uh, has because it's flinging that head around so fast, you know, right. it, it can shake the table that it's on. Uh, so it actually has MEMS circuits built in there to, and it tunes itself by moving the head back and forth really quickly. And you'll hear it when you do the calibration, it'll sound like it's a big hum and it's, a, it's vibrating the head and it's taking measurements from its MEMS. Uh, uh, it's incredible things in there and it, it tunes out the vibrations by controlling the stepper motors to tune out those vibrations, which can create uh, what's called echoing. Uh, so if you have a, let's say some text carved in the side of a, a solid uh, wall, you can sometimes see an echo uh, uh, or a duplicate of this a slight faint, a duplicate of that text uh, trailing away like an echo. And uh, that can, that can be a cause of, vibration, uh, head vibration or vibration in the chassis, et cetera. So you have to take that into account. Next question. Brody Hefner in New York City. 3D printers are fascinating, but I can't foresee having the level of need to justify the cost, space, and time required. With more companies offering printing and various media, what factors would justify purchasing a printer? Well, here's the thing is I, I use, I have a printer and I also use Shapeways. So I, so Shapeways is the one that I've used in the past to print and there's other companies that will print them. And what's cool about those is they'll, they are, to your point, they'll print a, um, uh, they'll print in metal, they'll print in rubber, they'll print in all kinds of things. And, and if you want a final piece, uh, we've, we've had stuff where we've sent it out for that and, and had it printed. That's great. The issue you really get into is um, that, iteration like the first version that you print isn't usually the one the, the last i've never done anything where i didn't do it i don't know five or six times at least like i'm always like oh that's great but what about this and oh that's great but what about this um and so i kind of tweak it and so not being i would never want to pay per cubic centimeter or whatever to experiment you know i, I want to be able to um know what I want and then go, oh, I'm not going to buy a metal printer. <laughs> like that's something that that's for them to do, not me. Um, but, but being able to, um, iterate and figure out what I want, uh, makes, makes a lot more sense. Um, yeah. Uh, anything else, Courtney, is that, would you, um, it's the, but I think the iteration for me is the biggest thing. I can't hear you. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, uh, you do find, like I say, uh, you know, at first I, I didn't think really, was, I don't have kids to print little toys for, uh, you know, so I didn't really see much purpose in, in purchasing one. But but then when you look at the utility of the things that you can print, you know, I've printed parts for my teleprompting systems out there, knobs, you know, and a knob breaks and, you know, oh God, I got to order another knob from the uh, manufacturer and it's going to cost 15 bucks for that one knob and it's going to take two weeks for me to get it. I can just go in and design another knob and print it out and have it ready to go. You yeah. Know, one thing I will say is that one thing hours. that goes really well with 3D printing is photogrammetry and especially now with the phones and a lot of other things that are doing this because, um, a lot of times I'm trying to fit things to something. So I want to 
um, I want to build a model that's going to hold my my switcher. Well, I need a 3D model of the switcher so that I can build around it. I don't have to. I mean, I can just guess, take some measurements, and then make adjustments. But it's a lot easier if there's a 3D model of it. <laughs> so so, uh, so being able to take a couple photos, and that technology is slowly catching up. I think we saw a huge jump in the APIs that Apple released uh, for the phone. So we should see some apps that take advantage of some of those pretty quickly. Um, but even if you're using something like Shapeways or, or not Shapeways, um, uh, um, my, my brain's going to turn off, but, um, you can, you can basically, um, there's a lot of, uh, apps that you can use to get that, that data, but that accurate data makes it a lot easier for you to build models, especially if you're adjusting for something else. I've literally taken my phone out and just used the, the polycam scanned a piece that I needed to fix and got back just enough of that piece. Was it, did it look good? No. Did it give me the information I needed to print something? Yes. <laughs> so, so I can, you know, and that took a couple of minutes rather than, than trying to measure it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, there's one thing also to, to know that uh, there's sites out there like Thingiverse, um, let me show you what it looks like here, uh, that has hundreds and hundreds of different utilitarian designs, things uh, things that you can use around the house, plus, you know, interesting things like this little globe of Mars here. That looks cool. Uh, and you can build tools, uh, really interesting vases and letters. And uh, it's just full of free things to download that you can try on your 3D printer if you don't want to design stuff yourself. So uh, there's thousands and thousands of 3D models available for printing online. Next question. From Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand, Peter wants to know, given the USA is non-metric, what gotchas are there for people like me that live in the real world when printing metric versus USA? Good, Courtney. Well, you the thing, the first thing you should buy when you get a 3D printer is a digital caliper if you don't already have one. And they're like 15 bucks these days. They're accurate down to a thousandth of a millimeter, and they convert between uh millimeters, inches, and even fractions, you know, 25, 30 seconds. If that's the way your brain thinks, you can measure things in that and then hit the button and convert that to millimeters and enter that distance into uh, uh, into Thingiverse or into, I mean, into your uh, Tinkercad. And Tinkercad, by the way, will work in millimeters or inches if you want to. You just change the method of, of calculating the, the measurements in there. The Most of the printers you usually work in millimeters so i use that and i'll use the digital calipers to measure stuff to you know a thousandth a tenth of a millimeter uh and it it's really accurate when you set it uh, when you set something design something in thingiverse uh i mean um tinkercad to be you know 21.6 millimeters wide you load that into the printer it'll come out it'll be pretty much 26 point <laughs> Uh, six millimeters wide so it's usually pretty accurate and some of them have a variation depending i'm sorry depending upon how you know uh the type of filament you're using and the temperature that you're working with so it has some slop in it you know? and again this is why you print them over and over again is that you you get something very close you print something and a lot of times i print pieces of things i go oh, i'm just going to print this little section and make sure that my measurements are correct i'm not going to worry about printing the whole thing because it's going to take a long time but i want to know that the what's what i have that's going to match something is going to be the right size and I can do that very quickly and, and just print out like a little section of it and like, does the interface fit? 
And a lot of times I can do that and, you know, it'll print in 45 minutes instead of 14 hours, which is what the whole thing is going to take. To get back to Alan's uh, complaint about it is, you know, I work on the key things that are there and then I let it print overnight. Um, uh, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, the United States Marine Corps used a 3D printer to print an F-35 part that was modeled in Blender. I've heard of Fusion 360 used to model 3D printed parts, but what cost-effective modeling software can be used for entry-level printing? I know a lot of people that, you know, I mean, as Courtney said, the Thingiverse has their own modeling. Uh, Fusion 360 is, is very useful for 3D modeling. It's kind of built for it, um, as well as Blender. And so those are probably... All of those are great entry-level um, um, pieces of software that, that could be used. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was trying to sign into uh, Tinkercad, which is what I men mentioned earlier. Uh, it's, um, here, I've signed into it here. Now you can take a look at some of the stuff that I've designed. Uh, you just, uh, uh, it has the entire interface. You just uh, choose what you want to uh edit you click on tinker this and this works in a browser and so here it is uh this was made up i made i created this strictly from geometric shapes which you just choose a geometric shape and you bring it over here and drop it on the uh drop it on on the bed here and you you load uh you set it uh, the work plane you set to the type of printer you have and so it'll show you exactly what the printable area is for your your printer so you won't end up uh, creating something that is not printable on your printer. But you can adjust uh, each one of these dimensions uh, and you can change in dimension. Just click on it and you can type in, you know, like 22.26 millimeters and it will change that dimension to that very precise amount. Or you can drag the dimensions until they change, et cetera. So it's pretty easy. And this is an additive and subtractive. So if you want to subtract, let's say you want to make a round hole in that, you just take a, something that's a whole and you can convert anything from a positive, you know, from additive to subtractive. And you, you, uh, when you group these two things together and mix them together, they would form, you know, in that sphere. Uh, so it's pretty easy to use additive and subtractive printing and you can switch from whole to solid at any time. So that's, that, those are the basic building blocks that I use to create everything that I've created, and it's free. Uh, it keeps all of your stuff online, so you never have to worry about, oh, did I, where did I leave that model last? Was it on the computer upstairs? It was on my phone? Was it on the laptop? It keeps everything uh, in your account uh, online, so you can download it anytime and print it, print it out. Next question. From Trish Meyer in New Mexico. Trish wants to know, I want to make parts for vintage sewing machines that were originally Bakelite. Can you spray the 3D with clear and black lacquer to make them look more like the original? Go ahead, Chris. Uh, I know absolutely nothing about 3D printing, but I just wanted to say hi to Trish. Big fan of you and Chris and all your work. <laughs> Everything I know about After Effects, I learned from you guys. Thank you so much. I literally survived Lucasfilm because of Trish. Um, anyway, Courtney. Well, yeah, if you can't find a, I mean, and like I say, these filaments come in every color of the rainbow and, and all types of finishes and wood and carbon fiber and uh, shiny and silk co colored, uh, you know, silk type dis colors and things. But if you can't find something in the color, you can always paint it. A lot of people sand and paint uh, their stuff to smooth out the layer lines, because if you don't want to see the layer lines, you can either print with finer layers, which takes a lot longer. 
or you can print with coarser layers and sand it down and paint it. Uh, a lot of people hand paint uh, figurines and things like that. So and you I, can spray them and paint them. And this is where I, I, I see more people moving towards resin when they're looking for really, really, really high resolution and a very a perfect res, you know, re replica, replica of it. And they're willing to put the extra time into that, that process. I find that they start moving towards resin because that it's going to be a, a better surface with more detail and more available detail that you, you can get um, over um, the PLA or, or other things like that. So when you're really trying to produce a part like that, I would, I would take a look at resin, resin printers at that point. Um, next question. From Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri, I had a chance to anneal some PLA prints and it made my work much stronger, allowing for shrink and stretch. But does this process release dangerous fumes? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. It depends on uh, the uh, filament that it was made from. Uh, ABS, it might. Uh, PLA, it won't. Uh, annealing is just a matter of reheating, uh, reheating your your print after the fact, and it will basically fuse the uh, the layers more tightly in together. However, it does shrink a certain amount. So if you're printing something that has to be a precise precision fit into something else, then you have to take all that that into account. You have to figure out how much the shrinkage is. You have to do a test to see how much of that filament will sheet will shrink after you anneal it at such and such a temperature for such and such a time. And once you calculate all that, then you have to scale your print up that amount to take into account that after you anneal it, it's going to be smaller. So it's kind of a fiddly. Uh, uh, and I wouldn't worry too much about the dangerous fumes, but unless you're using, you know, ABS. I would, anytime you're, yeah, unless you're, Unless you're using PLA, I think almost any time you heat up plastic, you should consider that whatever is coming out of it is probably not good for you. And I say that as someone who used to work at an electronics uh, company. <laughs> you know, so uh, fabrication is they they were casual about it, but it, it was probably probably shouldn't have been as casual as we were. Next question. Marty Atias is here from Maryland. What kind of materials are available for 3D printers? Did he work in all printers and what do they cost? Yeah, I think that's a pretty wide question. I think we've covered it in pieces. Uh, obviously, a lot of the printers, you know, the the, the PLA, PLA style have a handful of things that are those filament style printers. You have resin, but there's metal, there's rubber, there's, you know, as you go up in price, uh, these get, the ones that are affordable to us right now are mostly the resin and the and the filament style. Um, but the, but I think that, you know, as you go up in price, it'll, as we said earlier, you could print in cement, <laughs> but usually most of those things are not interchangeable. Uh, Courtney, real quick. Yeah, a typical print cost for filament is uh, between, you know, per kilo, and they usually sell it in a kilogram uh, roll, uh, is between uh, 20, uh, 15 to $30. So, you know, you can see all these 16 bucks. And those rolls last quite a while, unless you're yeah. crazy. Yeah, that's, that's several thousand feet of, of filament there. That's two kilogram. I'm mean, that's a kilogram, two and a half pounds of plastic. There. Yeah. Uh, next question. Peter Moore, Auckland, New Zealand. Peter wants to know what's the lifespan of the average consumer 3D printer printhead? Uh, if it's well cared for, uh, I don't know if there's an end point yet. I don't know if we've, I don't know if I've had, I know of anybody that's had their head go bad. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I can't hear you, Courtney. I got to 3D print something for that button. Uh, <laughs> I've changed out the hot end on my Ender 3 once, but it was because it had a nozzle clog and the 
the uh, uh, print, it was a freak thing, and the and the plastic went up all into the print head and just you know covered everything up, and it was easier to buy a new one for fifteen bucks and replace it. So you have to they sell they sell replacement uh, hot ends for all of these printers, uh, which are easy, pretty easy to replace, and they're not that expensive. But you know, I've had one that printed three and a half, four years without having to change the hot end. As long as you you can change the nozzles, the nozzles unscrew, and they have different diameter nozzles for the size of the filament that it squirts out. Uh, 0.4, 0.4 is the most common, but they make them in 0.6 up to you know millimeter wide, so you can print really you know, like toothpaste going out there, but uh, you can replace the nozzles. The nozzles are available depending upon the printer from uh, anywhere from 50 cents to, you know, $5 per nozzle to replace the nozzles and they're easy to replace. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. If I wanted to duplicate a small part, how might I capture the shape and dimensions of that part for printing in 3d and how easy would it be to modify it later with improvements? Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, like I showed earlier, the digital calipers, you know, measure the part in every every dimension and then just construct your new one to be the dimensions that you need. And print one, test it out. And if it's too big, take it down 0.04 millimeters or something and, and try it again. Uh, so there's a lot of iteration involved if you have to get something that is very precision fit. But uh, otherwise, digital calipers will get you in the ballpark really pretty closely. Yeah, and this is where I... I will do a couple of different things. I will, I don't use, I have digital calipers, which I use for some things as I'm testing them. But for the most part, what I do is take, I do photogrammetry or I take multiple photos and I do reference and then I build a 3D model from that, from those photos. Um, but usually I'm using some version of 3D scanning um, to get the rough, rough things. And then I'm going to build that model from it. The 3D scans, by the way, are not really printable. Uh, the geometry is a mess. So, um, so whether it's 3D scanned or, or photogrammetry, the geometry is not really worth printing most of the time. You can close it up and print it and get something out of it. Um, but generally what you want is to, um, now there are places where um, I've, I'm in the process right now of printing part of Anchor Watt, you know, in, in a little area here because I have photogrammetry at a very high detail, but it was very large. And then I printed it and I'm going to print it very small. Um, and so, uh, so that, that's, a, that's a place where it, it might actually work. Uh, next question. From James Brooks in New York, what software is needed for 3D printing? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, you need a modeler if you're going to create models. And uh, Simply 3D or Tinkercad, which we I mentioned earlier, are 3D creation. And those will output an STL file or an OBJ file, which is a 3D, a common 3D file format. But you can't load those directly into your 3D printer. You have to go through what's called slicer software. And slicer software will take that 3D object and slice it into horizontal slices designed specifically for your particular printer. So you, Cura is a very common open source uh, a version of a slicer. It's free to download and they keep it up to date. They have new versions of it, you know, about every two weeks. Uh, so uh, it's free and it has, uh, it has profiles for most 3D printers on the market. You just load the profile for your printer and it adjusts all of its settings uh, uh, for the slicer. And then when you click on the slice button, it, it slices up your 3d object. It tells you how long and how much filament it's going to take and how long it's going to take to print average time to print. 
Uh, so that's those are the softwares that you need, something to create and then a slicer. A lot of printers come with their own slicers that are designed specifically for that printer. Uh, next question. Ronnie Hofsey from Tromsø, Norway, asking, what about colors? How do you mix colors in a single print? Or should I just forget colors or paint them afterwards? I'll be honest with you. You can kind of do colors, but I would print. I would paint it afterward. <laughs> you know, so it's just easier. Next question. We're going to keep moving at the end of the hour here. It's Douglas Carmichael. I've heard that 3D printing has potential for quickly building parts in the field at an event site. Wouldn't 3D printers be very vibration sensitive and thus not appropriate for use in the field? Uh, the field is work. I, I, I actually worked in a, I worked on, a, on an event where there was a company that comes in and they, they back into the, into the dock and they, it's a double expando trailer, tractor trailer truck. And it had CNC, 3D printers, um, the tools to form, uh, neon signs, <laughs> um, electronics labs, everything. And all they were there to do is fix things. Like they didn't build anything. They were just the, the glue for everything else. Um, and if you wonder how much that costs, it's about $10,000 a day <laughs> for them to be there. But they just kind of fixed everything in the event. Uh, you need a little extra sign. You need a little piece piece built out of here, built. And um, and they definitely did it. And they had like three or four printers that were sitting there printing away. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, they're not that vibration. So I wouldn't print it in a moving car, but once right. the car comes to rest, you're fine. Yeah. Uh, next question. And it looks like the final question here for the hour. Ronnie Hofsey from Trumso, Norway. I'm going to print a replica of a new set of ski glasses from our favorite fruit company just to impress colleagues and friends. Is the Reality K1 able to do this and what material? I think you could do it. I will say that the if you're trying to do something at that that looks as smooth as that and to really make it work, I, this gets back into you may want to consider a resin printer to, to get the resolution that you would need to produce that at the highest level. If it's something for fun, you could probably pull it off uh, without that. But if you really want that that real fine-edged uh, thing, you'd probably want a resin printer. Go ahead, Courtney. But bear in mind, most resin printers don't print that big. The smaller ones, entry-level ones, use a phone screen, basically, mm -hmm. as their exposure device. So it's about the size, your print area is about the size of a six-inch uh, phone screen. So bear that in mind. The bigger resin printers uh, take a lot, you know, really smelly, take a lot of space and and will deliver nice, smooth, but it takes a long time and uh, <clears throat> uses a lot of that icky resin. It does, but I got to tell you, like, I, I, the problem was, is I, I had a PLA and then, and then I ha have, I know someone with a resin printer and they, we printed the same thing and it was kind of ruined me. You know, like I was just like, you know, it was just it was like on so much detail. So anyway, uh, so, but, but I, I haven't bought one yet. I'm thinking about it. All right. Uh, thank you so much uh, to everyone. Uh, great. And especially thank you to Courtney will, willing to come here and just just handle one question after the other uh, as we go through all as we go through all this. We're going to talk more about 3D printing um, probably uh, pretty regularly and probably at least once a quarter as we move forward. I think that being able to generate this stuff and building a group of people that are good at it. Um, I think is is useful. Again, we're we're looking at these certain kinds of technologies and how do we build the, the advantage of office hours is that we're persistent, which means that there's a lot of us here that are going to be here potentially for a while. So as we start to build up this knowledge base inside of our group, it just means it's a place that that um, that can be a resource for everyone over time. And so um, so we that's why we'll you'll see us start to focus on certain things to make sure that we have a lot of people that know how to do it. So uh, so thank you so much uh, uh, to the panel for a great first hour and second hour. 
uh, thanks to the um, the producers for all the great questions. You know, the I, I we couldn't the, the panel could not have held court and talked uh, for um, for an hour about it without without all your questions and and it'd be boring if we did. <laughs> so so it's much more interesting when we have a lot of questions. So thank you so much for that, um, and uh, and thank you to the incredible team on the back end. This this is not done by accident in any way, shape, or form. Uh, there is a huge group of people that are prepping the show, that are prepping our panelists for the show, that are running the show in the background, that are developing the tools that are required to make this show work. Um, and uh, and so all of that comes together every day uh, to make this happen. It's a small village and we really appreciate everybody's contribution. A, uh, a real quick reminder that we have the reader workshop today. Um, that is at 3 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And you can find out more about that in the email. Um, that goes out, and that's a place for you to. It's not just a reader workshop. It's really just a place to test if you're if you haven't been a panelist before and you want to see what that's like. If you haven't been a host before and you want to see what that's like, reader, uh, you're learning how to. You can learn how to do the back end tools. So there's a lot of. It's it's really just a a uh, a test space to learn how to run this show uh, because it's gotten to a point where you kind of need a little time to figure it all out. So um so if you're interested in that, 3 p.m. Uh, uh, Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. Again, it's in the email. Traveled 124,000 uh, miles. So we went full 1K today in the Tlaloc Traversal. Uh, 200,000 kilometers and eight, 900, almost a billion, 987 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Did they print the credits in 3D? Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, we could, we could... Uh... I don't know if we can use banana. I don't know if we should use bananas for scale because uh, Reddit is down. <laughs> I don't know if it's I don't know if it's down, but it's pretty quiet over there. There's, there's like a protest like, going on. It's like a ghost town. Like there's like little, little pieces of paper flying through, and everyone's hidden up into there. No one knows what's going to happen next. It's the Reddit revolt. Hi, Trish. Hi, Trish. Hi, Trish. Good night, Miss Calabash. 